Would you stand now for the reading of God's Word, if you're able? Our text this morning is just a short verse from 1 Peter. It's not even a full sentence. But you'll find in this short verse very timely words, timely words for us who are called to sojourn towards God's enduring city. The verse that we have before us this week and next week is a verse about anxiety. It's about the burdens that we carry and how those burdens can be relieved when we entrust ourselves to the care of God. A well-known philosopher named Charles Taylor has called this, our age, the age of authenticity. What he means by that is that this is the age where you're encouraged to find your true self, to reach your full potential, to find your, your authentic identity. And Taylor says it's been a struggle because we have struggled to know what our true self really is of all the selves we might pick which identity to forge, which potential to reach for. So as he says, the age of authenticity has yielded the age of anxiety. Anxiety and disorders related to anxiety are at astronomical levels. And though one verse is not a cure for all that may lie at the root of your anxiety this morning, what Peter tells us here in this one verse does give us a framework to apply the love of God to the things that we worry about. We're going to spend the next two weeks here at the intersection of God's care and our worry. Let's read this short verse together now from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Peter writes, Casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You may have heard the old saying that if your only tool is a hammer, then you approach every problem as if it was a nail. That saying is meant as an insult to those who have a limited toolbox, to those who have one pitch, to those who have one message to speak to every problem. Recently, I've heard that saying sort of turn on its head a little bit. a man say this, he said, geniuses actually have very limited tool sets. They typically only have a hammer. And what makes them geniuses is that they are experts at finding nails in every situation they approach. Give you a quick example of this from church history. Martin Luther was a German monk in the 16th century who helped give birth to the Protestant Reformation, which is 500 years ago this year. Luther had a hammer. His hammer was this message. He said, you are justified before God, not by the things that you do, not by your good works, but by faith alone in Jesus Christ. The doctrine of justification was Luther's hammer. And Luther was a genius because he could find all the places in your life, all the places in your heart where you functionally believe the opposite. Where you functionally believe that God is pleased with you, that he loves you, that he accepts you based on your performance, based on how good you are, based on your works, and not by faith alone. Luther could find all those nails. And that's what made his hammer so effective. What Peter is giving you this morning is a hammer. 
He is putting into your hand the basic tool that you need to deal with anxiety in your life. To deal with all the nails of worry that emerge and expose themselves in your own hearts. What is that hammer? The hammer is this, that God cares for you. God cares for you. It's pretty simple. The God who spoke the universe into existence, the God who weighs the stars and measures the skies, the God for whom we all appear as microscopic pinpricks on the grand scale of time, this is the God who cares for you. And Peter says you can cast all of your worries, all of your burdens, all of your anxieties on him because of this one fact. He cares for you. And what does that mean? What does it mean to say that God cares for us? The word care here in the Greek is only used a handful of times in the New Testament. But it means that God concerns himself with you, that he, he looks at you and has regard for you, that, that God is able to look at you and to focus on you. To give the word a little bit more texture, Jesus uses the same word in John 10 in the passage where he announces himself as the good shepherd. He says, look, you'll know me from other caregivers in your life. You'll know me from other hired hands, as he says. Because when the wolf comes, that is to say, when danger comes into your life and loving you all of a sudden becomes costly, you'll find that many people will abandon you. He says the hired hand flees because he cares nothing for the sheep. And then the contrast, but I know you. I know you, and I lay down my life for my sheep. That is the texture of God's care. The Bible says that God doesn't just care for you ambiguously, but that he knows you and that he loves you to the point that he is willing to lay down his life for you. And Peter here in this verse at the end of his first book is saying this is the hammer that you need to deal with anxiety in your life. This is not a complicated message, but it's one that you must learn to entrust yourself to. God himself cares for you. What I'd like to do this morning is just to tease this out a little bit. I want to focus on three ways that the Bible talks about God's care for you. Three ways that prove the strength of the hammer that, that Peter is putting into your hands to deal with your worries and your anxieties. Next week, we'll focus on the first half of the verse, what it means to cast your cares on him. This week, the reality that he does, in fact, care for you. The first way we see it is that we can see God's visible care for us in our prosperity. In our prosperity, when things go well in our lives, we see that he cares for us. Second way the Bible talks about God's care is we can see God's care in our suffering. That is, God's care becomes visible when things don't go well. Pain comes our way. And finally, God's care in the sending of his son. God's care in the sending of his son. This is, the Bible says, the historical moment, the historical fact that anchors every other way that God chooses to deal with you. Let's look at those in turn. First of all, God's care in our prosperity. What I mean by the word prosperity is just that God cares for you when things go well. They can be simple things. God cares for us and we see his care visible to us when we get a cool day in Dallas in July. 
Pretty awesome, isn't it? God cares for us and we can see his care for us when the plane that we're on lands smoothly and on time, like we hoped it would. God's care is visible in our lives when when you and your work do something significant, when you close a significant deal that you've been waiting on. God's care is visible when the property next to your church that you've prayed for for over a decade finally becomes available and you're able to purchase it. God's care is visible when the scan comes back negative. His care is visible when a sick child gets well. His care is visible when the spouse that you've been married to for over 20 years, you can say with all sincerity that you're still in love with him or her. Those are all examples of prosperity, and they're the most natural places for us to turn to see God's visible care for us. In fact, if you ask a child to pray at dinner over a meal at any time, what you'll often get is a simple review of the good things that God has given them. Because for them, it's indelible proof of his care. It's easy for even a child to associate the good things that happen to us with God's care for us. The Bible says that we should look around at our prosperity, that we should take note of all the things that have gone well in our lives, and we should see the hand of God behind all those things that has made us to flourish. Ecclesiastes 7.14 says, in the day of prosperity be joyful. Psalm 1 says that of the righteous man in all that he does, he prospers. Some of you will know well the words of Jeremiah 29.11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to what? To prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope in a future. When things go well in your life, the Bible teaches you to say, here is proof, here is proof that God is one who cares for me. Now, no doubt we often miss the the extent of that proof. We often take for granted. We overlook all the ways that God has been or caused us to prosper. There's a great comedic moment that occurred a few years ago in uh, late night when um, a late night host is interviewing a comedian. And the comedian's bit is, everything's amazing, but nobody's happy. Everything's amazing, but nobody's happy. In the bit, he tells the story about him sitting next to a man on an airplane. And the flight attendant comes over over the, um, the intercom and says, basically, look, we now have internet for you on the airplane. At the time of the telling, he's saying, look, this is the newest technology that we know existed. We can now get internet on the airplane. So the plane takes off and 30 minutes into the flight, the internet breaks down, it falls apart, doesn't work anymore. Flight attendant comes on and says, look, I apologize, but something's wrong with the internet, it's not working, you know, we apologize for the inconvenience. And the comedian says the man sitting next to him threw down his stuff and in a huff said, this is so unfair. And he said, how quickly that man thought the world owed him something that he didn't even know existed 10 minutes ago. He said, we complain about having the internet breakdown or having to wait on the runway an extra 10 minutes. We should just pause for a moment and consider every time we're flying that we are sitting in a chair in the air, (laughs) 30,000 feet in the air. Oh, are you taking part in the miracle of flight like a bird, amazingly? He said, a delay? 
I can't, look, I can't deliver it like he did, but a delay? New York to California now takes five, five hours. That used to take people 30 years. And if you've ever played Oregon Trail, you know that you don't end up with the same group that you started with, right? His point is this, we live in an amazing, an amazing world. And the little things, all the time, we take those things for granted. The Bible goes further and says that God has made you and I kings and queens of this world. And though sin has robbed us of any claims that we have on prosperity, God in his grace, in his common grace, has given us more than any of us deserve. Pause for a moment today and just consider the ways that God has been good to you. All the ways that he has made you to flourish. The Bible says that all of us have been kissed by his kindness. How have you been kissed? It's one way that you can visibly see God's care for you, reflecting on the ways that he has made you to prosper. The second way the Bible talks about is, it says you can also see God's care in your pain. Certainly this is a hard one to see, and I don't want to make light of how hard it is as someone who's standing before you this morning. But we need to affirm what the Bible teaches, and the Bible teaches that pain is also indelible proof of God's care for us. I'm going to explain that briefly in a moment, but first let me say this, that as a Christian, if you're sitting with us this morning as a Christian, this is really, really important for your maturity. It is vital for a mature faith to learn to trust God's care for you, not only when things are going well in your life, but also when things are falling apart. And why is that so important? Well, two reasons. If you only associate God's care with your prosperity, then you will end up with a faith that is as brittle as the circumstances around you. And when those circumstances break apart, when your dreams and your health and your wealth don't turn out as you had hoped they would, then your faith will falter as well. But let's for a moment consider the other side of the coin. Let's say for many of us that things have turned out way better than we ever thought. <laughs> that most of our lot in life has been prosperity. And yet you sense as did the writer of Ecclesiastes, that there is an emptiness to it, a vanity, a chasing after the wind. As one cultural critic put it, money doesn't make us happy, it makes us unhappy in a better part of town. <laughs> if you've largely been prosperous and you've only associated God's care with that prosperity, then a relationship with God can seem as empty to you as your next purchase. In other words, you can have none of what you've wanted, you can have all of what you've wanted, but unless you begin to associate God's care with you or for you with something beyond your prosperity, something beyond your health and your wealth, then your faith will stay shallow and weak. Look at anyone that you admire anyone that you admire whose faith is strong. And you'll see that such faith is not merely rooted in what has gone well for them, but it's been tested and rooted in much more than that. It is critical, it is vital that we begin to see that God cares for us not just when things go well, but also in our pain. 
and in our suffering. Say, Chad, what do you mean? How do you see it that way? Well, I want to rehearse for you just a moment this morning an argument from C.S. Lewis to help us. Lewis has a book called The Problem with Pain, The Problem of Pain. And one of the arguments he chases down in the book is this. He says, you know, often, especially as religious people, we often want to know, how could a good God allow pain and suffering? How could a good God allow pain and suffering? You ever had that question before? How could a good God allow pain and suffering? Lewis says, just step back for a minute from that question. Before you ever get to that question, first consider how anyone would ever arrive at the proposition that God is good in the first place. He says, you would never arrive there just by looking at the natural world. The natural world is full of hostility, it's full of anguish, it's full of distress, it's full of unfairness. Lewis says this, lay down this book for a moment while you're reading the book. He says, lay down the book and reflect for five minutes on the fact that all the great religions of the world were long preached and long practiced in a world without chloroform. And do you know what chloroform is? It's an old anesthesia. We could change that and say, all the great religions of the world were long preached and long practiced in a world without anesthesia, in a world without ibuprofen, in a world without air conditioning. He says this, look, religion has its origin in something beyond the natural world. He says, look, people came to believe in God, not because of their prosperity, but in spite of their pain, which is a minor miracle. He goes on to say this, if the source of belief doesn't come from the circumstances around us, then it shouldn't be destroyed by those circumstances either. It is a miracle that we came to believe in a good God in the first place. It must have come from something outside of our world. And then Lewis says this, And he goes on to to talk specifically about Christianity. And this is the part I want you to really hear. Lewis says the gospel, the Christian gospel, does not merely give you a God who is kind. It gives you a God who is love. And there is a big difference between the two. Lewis says someone who is kind will give you whatever you want and will tolerate whoever you are, no matter the ugliness that's found in you. As long as you escape suffering... That's the goal of kindness. But Lewis says not so with love. Love demands much more. Love demands the maturity. Love demands the perfection. Love demands the beauty of the one being loved, of the beloved. Lewis says, men, imagine that you fall in love with a woman. When you fall in love with a woman, do you then stop caring whether she is clean or dirty, fair or foul? And women... Do you regard it as a sign of love that a man stops caring how you behave? You would say never. And Lewis says it's the same with parents and children. He says love, listen to this, love may forgive all sins and still love in spite of them. But love cannot cease to want their removal. Of all powers, love forgives the most but condones the least. Love is pleased with little, but love demands all. And friends, what the gospel tells you is that this is God. God is not merely kindness, God is love, and that means his care is to give you not what you now think you want, 
but what he knows in the end you need most. And what is that? What does God believe that we all need? Well, it's the only thing that he has to give us. It is his glory. His glory. The glory of you being conformed into the image of his son, even through pain, to make you fit for the blessedness that awaits you for all eternity. You see, pain is the formative way that God's love makes us into images of his own loveliness. In fact, so formative it is that Peter, I I can't think of a place, almost never speaks of God's care in terms of prosperity. The Old Testament speaks a lot about it. The New Testament almost never. The writers almost never talk about God's care in terms of prosperity. Jesus mentions it in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, why is that? Because the New Testament writers lived in an era of great suffering, and they came to believe that God was at work in their suffering to make them lovely, to make them beautiful. Look, I realize that for those of you who are in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, it is easy for someone to stand up here and rehearse an argument than it is for you to walk in it. And I empathize with you who are walking through suffering right now, so I want you to, to, not, to not hear me say that it's easy. The Bible just says it's necessary. That it's necessary for you to know God not merely as kindness, but as love. The one who is committed to making you into an image of his own loveliness. And what makes all this even more convincing is the third proof. And that is God's care visible in the sending of his son. Listen to me, the hammer that Peter is putting into your hands, the hammer that God cares for you, the hammer that you are to to hit the nails of worry with, This hammer gains its greatest strength when God's care is anchored in the historical reality that God gave his greatest treasure, his one and only beloved son, for you. There's this great moment in Peter's life where this comes home for him, and we'll end here this morning. You may know the story. Peter and the other disciples are on a boat with Jesus in Mark 4. Now, the, the gospel telling of Mark's telling is sort of significant because Mark's gospel is often thought to be Peter's gospel. Mark and Peter were close companions. So the disciples are in a boat with Jesus in Mark 4, and it's at night on the Sea of Galilee, and a storm comes up. And Jesus is lying down in the stern of the boat. He's fast asleep during the whole storm, and the waves are... The waves are battering the boat. The wind is picking up. The boat is about to go under. The storm rages on. And Mark just says, look, the disciples are terrified. And so Peter and the others run to Jesus, and they wake him up. And do you remember what they say? They say, Lord, do you not care that we are perishing? When the only times the word care is used there. Jesus, do you not even care? Do you not care? What does Jesus do? He wakes up. He rebukes the wind and the sea as the master over creation. And he makes everything calm again. He says, peace, and peace comes. 
And Jesus turns to them and says, why are you so afraid? Did you not trust me? And and Mark says at that moment, they were filled with great awe, no longer at the storm and the waves, but at the one who stood there in the boat with them. Let me ask you a question, theologians. (laughs) When in that moment, when in that story did Jesus start to care? Did he care when things were going bad? Did he care when things were going good? Did he care when the storm was raging? Did he care when things calmed down? When did he care? He cared the whole time. He cared both when things were going good, or things were going well, and when things were were not. And how do you know? Well, the Bible says you know because Jesus got in the boat with him in the first place. You know that he cared for him because he was in the boat with him, in the storm and in the calm. Jesus so united himself to them that their destiny had become his own. And in the story, everything turns for Peter and the other disciples when they go from searching for God's care in the weather to assigning God's care to the Son. And that is a tremendous, a tremendous transition. Because behind every anxiety, behind every worry, behind every burden is a lingering question. Lord, do you really care? Lord, do you care that we are sinking? Do you care that we're falling apart? Do you care? And Peter says you will find the final answer not in the conditions of the weather, not in your circumstances, but in the giving of the sun who got in the boat with you and is committed to staying there until his final words of peace are cast over all the storms of your life. You will find the answer in the one who was made flesh, in the one who was made a curse, in the one who was made alive again, and in the one who was made king for you. Lord, do you not care? Here is God's answer. Here is my son given for you. Look at all of your circumstances through this historical fact that I have given my greatest treasure for you because I do, in fact, care for you. As Paul says, so how will I not now with him give you all things to make you lovely, to make you beautiful, to make you fit for the glory that I have prepared for you? You have to preach God's care to your worry. You have to preach it over and over again. Preach the care of God to your worry and your anxiety. Use it as the hammer. Whenever a nail arises, God cares for you because the sending of the Son tells you so. Let's pray.